great to have your company. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and this is The Bible Teaches. I'm having a series of conversations with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Is God for Real? This is the fifth program in the series. We've looked at the existence of God, the evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible, the case for creation, and why there is so much suffering in the world. Our program today is entitled The Jesus Myth. We are addressing the question, Did Jesus exist and was he divine? In the next program, the sixth in the series, Peter will address issues around the resurrection of Jesus. In the seventh and final program in the series, Peter will tell us about his journey from unbelief to belief in the United Kingdom and how he came to be a pastor in Australia. Hello, Peter. Welcome again. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. Peter, last time you gave us a perspective on suffering that will be new to most listeners. You put suffering in its cosmic context and show that God is working to eradicate suffering from the universe. You're now taking us to issues around the existence and divinity of Jesus. Why is Jesus such a controversial figure today? Why do we need, after 2,000 years of Christian history, to revisit the existence and divinity of Jesus? Well, I think, first of all, um, even if you look at it just from a purely... um social perspective, uh, the biggest religion in the world is Christianity, and it's named such after Christ, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so who, whatever we may uh, think about this individual, and we, we will probably come with presuppositions from our own background. I myself didn't have a background of believing God or believing the Bible. Um, I came from a fairly secular background. And so... Uh, But in spite of that fact, I can't deny the fact that the Christian religion is the largest in the world and and is based upon an individual who was Jesus Christ. Now, uh, whether he existed or not, we want to have a look at that in in a moment. I was um, looking at a newspaper, uh, sorry, a news magazine article, and um, this was from 1999, December 1999. We were coming to the end of of that year. And, you know, when uh, we come to the end of a year, uh, you know, you sometimes have uh, programs uh, reviewing the year in the news, perhaps, uh, what happened this year, what was significant. And we do that when we come to the end of a, a decade as well or even a century. But here we were coming to the end of a millennium, 1999, December, and uh, Time magazine had a cover, Jesus at 2000. They had Jesus Christ on the front. And uh, the author of the article was Reynolds Price. And he said in that article, he said, the single most powerful figure not merely in these two millenniums, in the last 2,000 years, but in all human history has been Jesus of Nazareth. Now, how could he say that? Why would he say that? Um, Time magazine isn't a Christian magazine. It's not Christianity Today. It is a, an American news magazine. And yet they've got Jesus on the front cover and they're looking back over the past 2,000 years. And here's this guy saying that he's been the most influential figure in all human history. What gives him the right to say that kind of thing. Uh, And realistically, the fact of the matter is that there have been more books written about Jesus than any other human figure in history. Uh, You know, you can go to any regular bookshop today and find books about Jesus, not just the Bible, but many, many other books about Jesus. Um, You could think about songs. There's been more songs written about Jesus Christ than about any other individual figure in the, the history of the world. Um, by a long chalk, you know. Um, you could think about poetry. You could be, think about architecture. 
there have been more buildings built to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ than any other figure in human history. So in that context, uh, in the context of, of him filling so much of our culture, um, he has become the most influential person in not only the last 2,000 years, but all human history. Why then are we, why then are we revisiting this issue? There seems to be a loss of confidence in the West around the whole issue of Jesus. Certainly. Um, and uh, just as an aside, um, the fact that uh, Christianity seems to be in decline in the West should uh, not overlook the fact that Christianity is booming in other parts of the world. Yes. In fact, Christianity is growing. We, we think in the West because it's diminishing or appears to be in the West that somehow it's diminishing in the, in the world, uh, which is not the case. But the point, I suppose, that many people ask is, did Jesus really exist? You know, is Jesus a character in a book uh, and nothing more than that? And uh, that character has, uh, you know, had influence uh, over many people's lives because of the teachings of the character in the book? Or uh, did Jesus actually really exist? Our primary source of information about Jesus is the Bible. But is there any extra-biblical evidence for the existence of Jesus? Yes, and, and this is the point, I guess. Uh, there is, there's no credible historian today who would doubt that Jesus actually existed uh, simply because there is that extra biblical evidence uh, people would say oh well as Christians you believe in the Bible it's your religious book um, and of course you're going to believe that but there is evidence for Christ's existence outside of that uh, and indeed in sources that would not necessarily be favorable to Christianity uh, and this makes uh, for very strong evidence for the existence of Christ so for instance um, there was a, uh, a Jew who uh, was a Roman historian. He was Jewish, but he was Roman. He was an historian. Uh, and some people will have heard of uh, Flavius Josephus. Um, and uh, he wrote a, a, a historical work called Antiquities of the Jews. And uh, he wrote in that work, he said, there was about this time, talking about the first century, Josephus lived from 37 AD to about 100 AD, um, he says then, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, that's non-Jews. Uh, he was the Christ, he writes here. And when Pilate, we talk about Pontius Pilate, who was the governor at the time Jesus, the Roman governor at the time Jesus was here on earth, it says, when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. So here's a, a Jew who had been working for the Romans as an historian, and uh, he writes about many, many things, but he also includes a passage here about Christ and the group of Christians who were named after him. So that's one reference. Uh, another um, is uh, Tacitus. He uh, was a Roman senator, a historian. He wrote uh, histories. He wrote about the time of Nero, and um, he was talking about the fire of Rome and uh, he says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, 
from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So here's Tacitus, a Roman historian, not favourable to Christianity, but recording the history of the fact that there was a group of Christians, uh, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome. They were named after a man called Christus or Christ, uh, and he um, suffered the penalty, the extreme penalty, under uh, Tiberius Caesar and under the governor Pontius Pilate. This evidence that you've brought to bear is also consistent with what the Bible is telling us. Well, some people might just say, well, you know, he was a figure that lived, but maybe these are just legends that sort of were um, developed around him over time. And I guess we're going to come back to those, we those do. things later. I guess the rule of thumb would be that if you're going to study history, uh, your best documents are your earliest documents. The best documents you have relating to a historical figure or an historical event are those that are written closest to that event. Yes. And certainly um, the biblical records would fit that description, and we'll talk about that in, in a little while. I just want to maybe share another. Uh, Pliny the Younger uh, lived between 55 AD and 117 AD, so he's living towards the... Uh, second half of the first century um, and he speaks about a group of Christians a group of believers now he's not favourable to them in fact he's um, sort of looking down upon them and he says they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn singing uh, and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God this is important because he is identifying a group of believers who would gather together to sing to Christ as to a God. Here he's identifying that the people were worshipping Christ as a God, even though he himself is not so a believer. So that's telling us that you know, the earliest sources are actually consistent with what the Bible is telling us. Right. So whether we, this is a, we, we don't want to uh, make more of this than, than we should. Uh, we're not saying this proves that Jesus was a God because we'll have to look at other evidence and we will do that. What this says, though, that there were people who believed him to be a God and were worshipping him as a God in the latter part of the first century. And Pliny, who is not sympathetic to Christianity, is recording this. So this is good evidence for us from an extra-biblical context that, as you say, is consistent with the biblical record but has no uh, it's not seeking to promote Christianity. It's simply consistent with the evidence we have in the scriptures. Mm. Are there any others? Uh, there are others, um, and we we could probably uh, look at some. Um, there was a, a graffiti that was left on a, a prison wall by a prisoner, and um, it was uh, a graffiti of a figure hanging on a cross with a donkey's head. Yes. And uh, the person who scribbled the graffiti had said, um, you know, Alexamenos worships his God. And it was mocking somebody for worshipping somebody who died on a cross. Uh, and, of course, uh, the only one that we're aware of who was worshipped who had died on a cross was, of course, Jesus. And so it was evidence that... Um, it was consistent once again with the idea that somebody who died on a cross was being worshipped by somebody and the fact that uh, that was even being mocked by others. So again, it wasn't evidence on the positive side. It wasn't evidence trying to promote Christianity, but inadvertently actually confirmed some of the record that occurred. The history of mocking Jesus then is very old. 
Well, that's right. And even in the uh, the biblical um, text of the New Testament, we find that those around Jesus at the cross mocked him. Uh, so they did not believe Many did not believe that he was anything special when he went to the crucifixion, and his enemies certainly didn't. So he was a divisive figure as well as a, a figure around which, around whom people were actually unifying. Well, you can imagine, we're going to look at some of the claims of Jesus. And, um, you know, one of the common things that people will say is that Jesus was a good teacher or he was a good moral man. Um because even outside of Christianity, you will find some Jews who will say he was a prophet or he was a good teacher. You will find that Muslims have respect for Jesus. They believe he was a prophet. Um, so you have uh, two other significant religions who believe good things about Jesus, even though they don't believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. Um, but we want to have a look at some of the claims of Jesus from the New Testament because uh, the question then is, if Jesus were a good man, a good moral teacher, would he have said the things that he's identified as, uh, as saying, the record gives as, as him saying? In fact, we have to understand it's the teachings in the New Testament uh, that people are following. They're following Jesus because of the teachings of the New Testament. They're not just following Jesus based on those other historical records. They're, basing, they're, they're following Jesus because of what is written in the New Testament. There are claims made by Jesus and there are claims made by others. Who followed Jesus. Who followed Jesus. Correct. So let's have a look at some of those. So what are some of the claims yeah. that Jesus made Absolutely. about himself? Well, let's look first perhaps uh, in, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. John would have been an eyewitness. In fact, uh, you know, many people would know that Jesus had 12 apostles who followed him around closely. He had many more disciples, other followers, but he had a core group of 12 who followed him around regularly. But even within that, he had a group of three. Peter, James and John, who sometimes he took aside by themselves uh, and those three seem to be kind of his inner circle, if you will. And um, one of them was John and John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three other letters in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Revelation. But John records in his Gospel, Jesus is saying this. In John fourteen six, he quotes Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That would have been a pretty electrifying statement for the Jews to hear, wouldn't it? Well, it really would, um, especially because from their perspective, of course, the Father is God. Uh, Jesus referred to God as our Father, my Father. And uh, so he says, no one comes to fa the Father except by me. So Jesus is actually saying, I'm the way that you get to God. And apart from me, there isn't another way to God. It's a very exclusive claim. Uh, somebody uh, once said, you know, that's arrogant. That's so exclusive. It's arrogant to say that you're the only way to get to God. Unless, of course, it's true. Unless, of course, it's true. And, and you know, I've heard others um, use this example. I have a son and I could say I'm the only father of this son. Uh, that's a very exclusive claim, but it happens to be true, and therefore I'm able to say it. And Jesus was saying that the way for us to get closer to God is through him. That's really what he's saying. And um, But again, it's a very exclusive claim. Now, of course, if Jesus were a good moral teacher or a, a good moral person, 
That's a very bold and arrogant thing to say. Um, major imagine cl- you and a, I. It's a major claim. It's he's, a major he's saying claim. that he's the way to God. Yeah. He's also the truth. Yeah, I am the way, he the truth, and the, the truth life. And the I am life. the life. I mean, that's a very dramatic claim to make too. So, uh, I mean, you can imagine if I had said that on this program, then uh, your listeners would have a right to think that's a very arrogant, bold claim, and I'm, I'm not sure I believe that. Somehow, people believed what Jesus had said um, and have become his followers. Not only that, uh, but uh, as I say, it's become the world's largest religion. But that would also depend on the the veracity of the the claims in the Bible about the miracles that were performed. Of course, of course, and and a lot of that has to do with the eyewitnesses who were present. Again, we say, you know, this is. I want to come to another claim of Jesus, where um, Jesus was in conversation with the Jewish religious leadership of his day. So, two thousand years ago. The Jewish religious leadership, they would go to uh, rabbinic schools, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem, they would learn about the Old Testament and they would teach the uh, the Jewish nation about the will of God, about what, what the, the Bible said. Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. He wasn't re- regarded by them as a religious authority. I mean, this man's just a carpenter as far as they were concerned. And so he would be regularly... There were times in the New Testament you can read where Jesus is regularly in conversation with the Jewish leadership and they're questioning him over some of the statements he makes, over some of the claims he makes, over what, by what authority are you saying these things? And in one of these conversations, they got on to talking about we've got Abraham as our father. And Jesus says to them in John eight fifty eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a strange statement to make in the first place because he, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. But the Jews understood what he was claiming. Absolutely. The Jews were so incensed by what he had said, they actually took up stones to stone him for blasphemy because when he says, before Abraham was, I am, that term, I am, was a term that God had used to describe himself when he was talking to Moses in the burning bush. There's a story in the Old Testament. There was a burning bush in the wilderness. Moses goes over to see what this burning bush is, and God speaks to him from that burning bush. And um, God tells him to go to Egypt, tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, what will I, who shall I say sent me? And God says, you shall say, I am has sent you. And what God is really saying there is, I am. It's not that I was or I will be. I am. I am always in existence. God is a uh, self-existent being. He doesn't rely upon anybody else to give him life. He has life in himself. He is the self-existing one. He is the God of the Old Testament. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, what Jesus is really claiming here is, I'm the God who spoke to Moses. I'm the God who spoke to Abraham. I'm the God of the Old Testament. So I have authority. So therefore I have authority. And the Jews are looking at this man thinking, he's just a carpenter from Nazareth. And they took up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And so this was a very powerful kind of a statement for Jesus to be making. And again, We need to put it in the context of if we're going to say that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher, um, you know, a good man, a prophet even, would a prophet, a good man of God, 
a good teacher, say the kind of things that Jesus said? And we would have to say, well, if he was a good teacher, you would think he'd have to tell the truth. And either this is true or it's not true. There's kind of no middle ground here. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, he is saying he's identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, and that's a huge claim. I understand you only have three options. What are those three options with that claim? Well, um, I'll come back to those three options. I want to okay. talk, I'm going to review a few more of his claims because okay. it goes beyond that. John 17, 5 says, And now, O Father, glorify me. To Jesus was praying to, to the Father in heaven. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in that other conversation, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. So I've basically saying, I've lived before Abraham was born 2,000 years ago. Here he's saying, I was around before the world was created. So he's not only saying he was born before the Jewish leaders of the time, but he was born before the world began. Exactly. And he goes even beyond that. Uh, other claims that he makes is another claim in John eight twenty three. Jesus said, he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And it's, a, it's tantamount to me saying, I'm from out of space, you know. Uh, when I make that claim, you, you're either going to believe me or you're going to think I'm mad or you think I'm just conning you or I'm, a, I'm joking or something. But Jesus made these incredible claims that um, he was the way, the only way to the Father, that he was, in fact, the God of the Old Testament, that he was around before the world was created and that he's from somewhere else. I am not of this world, he says. So... These are very uh, strange claims for a normal human being to make. Any human being who is making these kind of claims, we would have a lot of questions about that human being and we would want to see evidence, dramatic evidence, that backed up these claims because these are wild claims. These are big, huge claims. They're, these are claims that couldn't be bigger. For somebody to be basically say, I'm the God of the Old Testament, that I am God, that's a huge claim because you look like a human being. And so uh, clearly there was something about the way in which Jesus lived, the way he taught, the way he treated people. And, of course, the Bible records many miracles and those miracles served to reinforce the teachings of Jesus. Uh, and I think that, that shouldn't be underestimated either. The Old Testament talks about miracles as well. There were miracles recorded in the Old Testament, Absolutely. but the people who did them weren't divine. Well, this What's is very, very important, yes. Well, you can look at a variety of the miracles in the Old Testament, and the prophets who performed those miracles did so by the authority of God. They were not claiming to be God. In fact, they brought a message from God. They didn't bring a message that they were God. In fact, uh, often you'll find the, the prophet themselves saying, I, I'm nothing, you know, I don't have any special powers. I think of the prophet Daniel, for instance. He said um, God revealed him to him a dream. And he said, God didn't reveal this to me because I'm wise. So he wasn't claiming any of that special ability for himself. It was all about God and what God was trying to say. So, yes, there were plenty of miracles in the Old Testament, but those prophets that were involved in that were not drawing attention to themselves. They were saying, it's God who is responsible for the influence of this miracle, not me. 
Many people initially thought that he was just a prophet, but later came to see him as divine. So there must be some significant evidence waiting for us. Well, of course, the um, the claims themselves, uh, he was saying these things and they and then they were seeing him fulfil different prophetic uh, pieces from the Old Testament, which we'll come to in a moment. Here's one other claim I wanted to mention before we move on to another section. In John 11:25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Here Jesus is claiming that if you die, he has the power to bring you back to life. That is another massive claim. And there are a number of instances in the New Testament where Jesus does precisely that. So the fact is, he might make this claim and we say, well, that's a claim. But if you were there present at a time when somebody who died was brought back to life by Jesus, maybe then you would start to believe those claims. And of course, the eyewitness evidence, the eyewitness accounts of those who were with Jesus were that that is exactly what he did. There were people recorded in the New Testament that Jesus brought back to life. There don't seem to be any accounts at the time, which indicated that those miracles didn't take place, that would seem to indicate that they had taken place. Otherwise, you would have had people denying the claim that those miracles had actually occurred. If you think about it, many of the miracles of Jesus were done in public. They were done in the um, presence of eyewitnesses. They might have been done in the presence of those who weren't necessarily close followers of Jesus, who actually saw these things take place. So there are times when Jesus performs a miracle in a synagogue, when there have been a lot of gatherers there, um, you know, Jews going there to worship. There were times when, you know, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. There were 5,000 people on that hill. That's a lot of people to um, keep quiet. It's a lot of people to say, well, you're all deluded. You were all, it was an illusion. It was a hallucination. Uh, You were all fooled. That's a lot of people to all be fooled by the same thing. Uh, These people testified to the fact that they saw that miracle. Could this explain the rapid rise of Christianity following the resurrection? Well, I think it does, and I think the the resurrection itself has a massive influence on that. Uh, and, of course, that's our subject for next week, and we're going to talk about that in more detail then. Um, but certainly um, the miracles that occurred uh, served to uh, support, strengthen the claims that Jesus made verbally. See, I could make a claim about something, but the way I live my life and the way I treat others uh, either supports or negates the claims that I'm making. And Jesus was a person who lived a life that was consistent with the teachings that he was giving. So how do we deal with this claim that Jesus was just a great moral teacher, the, the one that we hear, which is really a way of acknowledging that Jesus was someone significant, yeah, but not acknowledging him as being divine. And, you know, I think people say that, and I probably would have said that too before I was a believer. When I was a secular person, if somebody asked me about Jesus Christ, I would say, oh, you know, he was probably a good man who lived some time ago and people believed things about him, but, you know, he was just a man. But good men don't say they're God, do they? But good men don't say they're God. Um, And, you know, uh, I think most, there there are very few people who are willing to say that Jesus was a bad man or that Jesus was an evil man, you know, that he just did too many good things, too many kind things, too, too, he had too much compassion for people to say that he was a bad man. I've very rarely heard anybody seriously say that Jesus was not a good man. But then, of course, 
he must have been more of a man, more than a man to make these claims. C.S. Lewis uh, makes a famous quote. Um, you know, most people will have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, those books, children's books that he wrote, and of course they would have been made into uh, feature films. Um, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is probably the, the most famous of the Chronicles of Narnia that he wrote, and C.S. Lewis wrote these books, but of course he was a great theologian. He wasn't just a children's storybook writer, he was a great theologian from Oxford, and um, he has this quote where he addresses this idea uh, of people saying that Jesus was just a good man. Uh, notice what he says here in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is what many people say. And he goes on and he says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil, from, uh, the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fall, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me, says Lewis, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, that's uh, a really well-thought, uh, well-articulated uh, argument in regard to the divinity of Christ um, because, as we've said, as we made those claims, we're talking about the fact that a good moral teacher wouldn't make those kind of claims because they would be either outrageous, uh, they would be a, an outright lie, uh, you know, or they'd be trying to con you in some way, and that then wouldn't make him a good teacher. We'll go to a break now, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Peter about the prophecies of the Redeemer in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled these when he came to earth. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN that is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. You're listening to The Bible Teachers. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and I'm speaking with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, did Jesus exist and was he divine? Peter, in the first part of our program, we looked at 
these significant claims that Jesus made about himself. And as far as I'm aware, the only person who's ever made a claim to be God and been treated seriously with that claim is Jesus. And we looked at the impact of Jesus on our world. He's had a tremendous impact, hasn't he, to the extent that we actually measure time. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just go back to your previous point about um, his claims to be God. You know, a number of people through history have claimed to be God. Um, And, you know, you think of the pharaohs of Egypt just as one example. Um, And, of course, today we don't see... the Caesars. Of course. The Roman Caesars. But we today in the 21st century, we don't regard those uh, claims seriously. We don't seriously believe that the Caesars or the pharaohs were gods. In fact, you can go to the Cairo Museum and see many of the mummies of the pharaohs in uh, in that museum. And those claims were made to sustain political power and order in their societies. Well, that's Jesus true didn't too. go down that line. Well, that's he? interesting too, that you look at the humble circumstances of not only his birth, but his life and all of those things. Uh, he, there is a marked contrast between him and other persons who claim to have greatness and so forth. But I mean, even if you think of other prophets, not only, um, you know, of, of other religions, if you think of prophets of other religions, they or they claim to be wise men, they claim to be prophets, they claim to be teachers, but they're not usually claimed to be God. And this uh, does sort of uh, single out Jesus, that he was such a humble man, and yet he would claim to be God, because that's a very arrogant and outrageous thing to claim unless it's actually true. And in regard to his influence, even, you know, we sit in the studio and we talk here in the 21st century, But why is it the 21st century? It's the 21st century because that's how long time has elapsed since the time when Jesus came uh, and was born in Bethlehem, which we'll talk about in a moment. So, uh, in other words, all of our history is um, measured by the life of Christ. So it's either B.C., before Christ, or it's A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, of course, uh, secular historians today use different terms. They'll use BCE for before the common era or CE, the common era, but we're still using the same time frame. The point is about 2,000 years ago, something happened, and that something was the coming of Jesus. And we have been measuring uh, time, uh, the world around since, uh, by that event. And so every time we write the date, we testify to the existence of Jesus Christ. And in the New, in the Old Testament, we're looking at a number of prophecies of the Redeemer. Absolutely. So uh, some of the um, best evidence, perhaps, in regards to why the New Testament believers did believe that Jesus was the Christ was not only the resurrection, which we will talk about next week, but also because he fulfilled in his life so many prophecies of the Old Testament that they would make about the coming Messiah. And as a perhaps as an example, let, let me um, use a sort of modern uh, day story to to illustrate what I mean by that. Um, we know that uh, you know Prince William and Kate Middleton that got married. They had their first child in 2013, Prince George Alexander Louis. Um, and uh, before a few weeks, maybe six weeks before the birth of that child, the Sunday Telegraph newspaper. Uh, had a, uh, a, a, a pullout uh, within that paper, and it was, uh, you know, uh, called Inside Edition, 
And on the front it said, oh baby, and the headline was this, is this the world's most anticipated childbirth since Jesus? Now, of course, they were talking about the anticipated birth of Prince George, uh, you know, William and Kate's uh, new baby, because, of course, uh, should he grow up, he could grow up to be a king. So he was a very anticipated childbirth. And they've got a picture on the uh, the cover of that uh, lift out with a baby with a crown on his head, you know. Uh, but notice the headline, is this the world's most anticipated childbirth since Jesus? You see, Kate's childbirth was anticipated because she was heavily pregnant. We expect heavily pregnant people to give birth to babies. And, of course, this was a very special baby because he was going to be born to be a king. Uh, But it belies in the title, this most anticipated childbirth since Jesus. Well, how come Jesus was anticipated? Well, they're not talking about the fact that Mary was pregnant and, of course, we were anticipating she was going to have a baby. They were talking about the fact that Jesus' birth was anticipated hundreds of years in advance because in the Old Testament there are lots and lots of prophecies and allusions to the life of the Messiah, the Christ, the one, the saviour of Israel, the saviour of God's people who would be born and would come and be their deliverer. And so this, this uh, you know, newspaper handout uh, that, you know, we may just brush past but it's identifying the fact that Jesus' birth was indeed anticipated. If Jesus fulfills very ancient predictions, then that gives credence to his claims, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, there are certain things that you... I mean, for instance, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament about the fact that the Messiah, their ruler, would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, you and I could easily replicate that. I could go to Jerusalem today, hire a donkey, jump on it and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and say, hey, look, I must be the Messiah because I fulfilled that one prophecy. That's easy to replicate for one ful- person. I couldn't fulfill the prediction of death and resurrection. Though. Right. And other, other things, and we're going to look at some of those other things, things like uh, who your um, family was. You have no control about that when you're born. It has nothing to do with you. You, you really can't do anything about who, who your family is. You can't do anything about where you're going to be born. You can't do anything about the timing of your life. In other words, you and I live now in the 21st century. We couldn't have decided we were going to live in the 15th century. You know, there was a specific timing around Jesus' life. Um, and... We want to look at some of those because Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies or allusions to the Messiah in his life. Uh, And that's significant. It wasn't, you know, if you and I were trying to be the Messiah, we were trying to replicate what he did. We would find it very difficult to fulfill all those 300 prophecies. And some of them it would not be possible for us to fulfill because they're out of our control. So what's the probability that Jesus could fulfill those 300-odd predictions? Well, it is an astronomical number, and actually some uh, a mathematician and his students have set about attempting to find out what the odds were, and we're going to have a look at that in a moment. But let's look at some of these specifics. For instance, the place of his birth. Most people in the Western world know about the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. You know, we sing those Christmas carols at Christmas time, uh, and people are familiar with uh, the story. And of course, that was prophesied in the Old Testament prophet of Micah, 
chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Here it's telling uh, the Jewish people at the time, 500 years before Christ, that uh, the ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem or would come out of Bethlehem. And, of course, um, you know, we, we know the uh, old little town of Bethlehem, uh, away in a manger, those kind of uh, carols that we sing at Christmas time that tell the story of the, the Christmas story. But, you know, most people maybe don't stop to think about the fact that Joseph and Mary, you remember the Christmas story where uh Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, of course, Joseph was going to put her away quietly. He was thinking, here's this woman I'm meant to be marrying, and she's already pregnant, not by me. Uh, So he was going to put her away quietly, and God gave him a vision that this, in fact, was of God. It was of the Holy Spirit. And they lived in Nazareth, you see. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, which is, uh, you know over 100 kilometers north of Bethlehem, and yet the baby was to be born in Bethlehem. And this is uh, remarkable from the fact that we read the Bible story, we find that there was a census, just like we have an Australian census every five years. They had a census. Back then, the Roman Empire had a census, and uh, they wanted people to return to their ancestral home in order to conduct that census. And so Joseph had been had come from Bethlehem. That was his ancestral home. So Joseph and Mary travelled down to Bethlehem. She was heavily pregnant, and Bethlehem was the place where Jesus was born. And, uh, you know, so it was not just some kind of coincidence that Jesus happened to be born there. This must have been known in advance. And, of course, God claims to know the future. Um, Matthew chapter 2 records the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, it's fascinating because uh, some people remember the wise men, three wise men coming to look for the one who was going to be born king. They come from the east, the wise men from the east. They actually come to Jerusalem and they say, where is he that's going to be born king of the Jews? And the king, King Herod at the time, he sends for some of the religious leaders and the scribes. He says, uh, tell me, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they look up the scripture And they look up Micah and they say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And off the wise men go to see the newborn King Jesus. And yet Herod and the scribes and the religious leaders, they don't go. They've got a book that tells them where to go. Here they've got wise men from the east saying, we've come to find this newborn king. And they don't even go to see it. So they didn't do their homework. Well, it's they knew. That's the point. They were the ones who told the wise men where to go. It's not here in Jerusalem. It's down in, in Bethlehem. And yet, but the fact that they even, didn't check... the, even though they knew where to look, they didn't bother to go. And so it's fascinating to me that there, at the time when Jesus was born, there were people in Jerusalem who knew where the Messiah would be born. The fact that they didn't check is amazing to me. Mm. Because the significance of the Redeemer to the Jewish people was, was huge. He, they, he was the one whom they were waiting for. In fact, you could argue that the actual purpose, the very purpose of the nation of Israel was in, to introduce the Messiah to the world. So here was the culmination, the very purpose of their being, and somehow they were going to overlook it. Another uh, of the prophecies, of course, is about Mary, his mother, who would be a virgin until 
she had Jesus. Uh, and of course, um, in Isaiah seven fourteen, it says, "Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." Um, and then in Matthew one eighteen, we have the fulfilment of this, where um, Mary uh, was a virgin; she was betrothed, and she was with child of the Holy Spirit, and she was instructed to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is another identification of Jesus as God. It's not just a, a prophet with us or a teacher with us or another man with us. It was God with us. And so that was another prophecy in regards to his birth, that he would be born of a virgin. Now, you know, today, of course, with artificial um, insemination, uh, it's quite feasible medically to have a virgin give birth. It's actually possible, but not back then. <laughs> um, and so this was something uh, miraculous. Are there any other claims in the Old Testament that are highly significant? Well, I've mentioned that there are probably 300 prophecies and allusions that we could look at, and we're certainly not going to look at all of them. What are the ones that would be really difficult to, for, a, for a human to fulfill? Yeah, well, if you look at his betrayal, for instance, when Jesus was betrayed, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah 11, 12. Uh, it talks about how he would be betrayed uh, by his friends and it says they paid me 30 pieces of silver so his betrayal was going to be for 30 pieces of silver and of course when you look at the New Testament we think of Judas most people have heard of Judas as the betrayer of Jesus he was one of his 12 disciples and yet he betrayed Jesus to the authorities and, and he was put to death but uh, Matthew twenty six fourteen says then one of the 12 the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Now, this is significant because there are hundreds of years between the prophecy in Zechariah and its fulfillment in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. And how could somebody hundreds of years ago know that even silver would be the currency of Israel at that time? And 30 silver coins is very specific. Uh, and that's a very specific um, uh, no, you, a very specific reference to uh, this New Testament fulfilment. I'm just wondering whether some of those rulers would have known about that prophecy or a, a prophecy about 30 pieces of silver. Well, that, that would be an interesting one to reflect that on. That would be interesting. I'm not sure whether those rulers would have known that, but certainly when Matthew writes his gospel, and Matthew, again, was one of the 12, he was an eyewitness, he writes his gospel uh, and he is very aware that this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And if they did know the prophecy, maybe they wouldn't have been too too willing to rush to uh, to fulfill it. To condemn him, yeah. In Psalm 41 verse 9, another Old Testament prophecy written about a thousand years before Jesus, he says, uh, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He talks about how he was betrayed, and he talks about he would be betrayed by a familiar friend, somebody he trusted, and somebody who ate bread with him. And it's fascinating in the Gospel of John, we read about the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples before his crucifixion. And he talks, uh, somebody uh, asked him, because he said, somebody's going to betray me. And uh, John says, who is it? And Jesus says, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. So this was somebody who ate bread with him, as the prophecy had said, 
he was a familiar friend because he'd been with Jesus throughout his three and a half year ministry. Judas Iscariot then went out and betrayed him. So these are fascinating details of the life of the Messiah, of the life of Christ, but they're written hundreds of years in advance in the Old Testament. Another one is in Isaiah 50 verse 6. He says, um, 50, Isaiah 50 verse 6, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. And if uh, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And all of these things are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 26 says, they, uh, Then did they spit on his face, they buffeted him around, Others smote him, hit him with the palms of their hands. And so, uh, you know, Jesus had his beard plucked. Um, All of these details are recorded about him around the time of his crucifixion in the New Testament, things that had been prophesied centuries before. I imagine that if the disciples were setting out to fool people and to try to uh, fulfill these predictions from the Old Testament, that they might have got a number of them, but they wouldn't have got all of them. Well, that's right. Uh, Another one, a famous one, is in Psalm 22. It says, They pierced my hands and my feet. And, of course, Jesus died. He was executed by crucifixion, where his uh, arms and his uh, feet would have been nailed to a cross. And, uh, of course, in Psalm 22, uh, you know, crucifixion wasn't even being practiced back then as a form of execution, a form of punishment or torture. And so... Using those kind of references is quite amazing that Jesus fulfilled that in his in the way he died. Um, even the fact in same Psalm 22, it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, and that's recorded in the New Testament, how they took Jesus' clothes from him and they, they cast lots. You know, they like threw a dice to decide who would get the clothing, you know, between the Roman guards. Now, the, the, uh, the apostles... They're actually recording events that were in the public domain. Yes. And they're putting these events together and they're covering all of these predictions. That would have been a really difficult thing for them to do if they were just simply trying to fool people. Well, you said yourself that the, the, all these things were happening in public. Uh, they were happening with lots of witnesses. So when the disciples and those who wrote the Gospels and the New Testament, when they're writing this down... Uh, after the fact, after Jesus has now ascended to heaven, at the beginning of the New Testament church, when they're writing these things down, there would have been ample opportunity for people who lived at the time of Christ, who saw his life, who saw the way he died, and said, no, no, that didn't happen. But they were very aware. They'd witnessed these events. So there were many witnesses to these things. They're not making this history up. That's the point. They're not making up the history. Yes. And yet their account, which is basically being able to be verified in the public domain is fulfilling these predictions. That's very powerful evidence. It really is because you've got those eyewitnesses, those eyewitnesses who may not have become followers of Jesus, who may not have certainly at his crucifixion weren't interested in promoting him. Uh, They were there to execute him, uh, many of them. And so uh, you you have many of these folks who are eyewitnesses to the fact who when these uh, claims are being made in the New Testament... Uh, we don't find these counterclaims being made of saying, no, this is an alternative life of Jesus written in the first century. Um, they they would have seen and understood that this is actually what took place. Another one in regard to the crucifixion, of course, is Isaiah 53. And when you read the passage of Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering of the Messiah and the sacrifice 
of the Messiah and that the Messiah would actually come as a servant and as a sacrifice. Uh, Many of the Jews of the first century were looking for a great deliverer. They were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for one who would come and deliver them from the Romans. They were looking for a great warrior. They were looking for somebody who would get rid of the Romans, get rid of these uh, oppressors. And in Isaiah 53, you have a perfect example of that. Isaiah written about 700 years B.C., Isaiah 53, verse 3, says he is despised and rejected by men. Talking about the Messiah, the the Messiah that would come. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says he would be wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. It says we all like sheep have gone astray. uh, And he, the Messiah, would, would be afflicted, yet he would open not his mouth. Even that's recorded in the Bible where Jesus was being questioned and and oftentimes he wouldn't respond. He just remained silent. Um, He wasn't going to respond to accusations that were false about him. So he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, the Bible says. And of course, um, we see that with Jesus. And even the words that he spoke on the cross are recorded in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the point of all of that is that Jesus was the Messiah. He was forsaken by God the Father because he was paying the penalty for our sins. That is the whole point. When you read the uh, New Testament, that's the point about Jesus, that he came to pay a price. He came to die so that we might have a second chance at everlasting life. And that covers all periods of Earth's history. So Jesus has contemporary significance. If his story is true, then it's significant for us today, just as it was for people 2,000 years ago. If you're alive today and listening to this uh, broadcast, then it's significant for you because it's for human beings. It is for, uh, you see, I might say that, you know, if you were facing a death sentence, I might be able to persuade, it would be very difficult, but I might be able to persuade somebody to say, you save Barry's life, take mine instead. But even if they would uh, allow that, that's only one person giving their life for one person. I couldn't give my life for 10 people. But you see, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be an eternal being, and therefore he has eternal life. And therefore his life is potent enough to pay for the lives of anybody and everybody. And because he's eternal... He's always significant. Always significant. And Christianity looks forward as well as it looks back. It looks forward to the second coming and to eternity. Well, that's right. And a lot of that depends on the the truth or thereof of the resurrection, which we will look at next week. Just want to refer to um, something you mentioned before, which was what are the odds? What are the odds of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies in lifetimes? Could it be manufactured? And we've said before how difficult it would have been to manufacture certain of those prophecies. Uh, Dr. Peter Stoner, he was the former chairman of the Departments of Mathematics, Astronomy and Engineering at Pasadena College in California. So I guess he was a pretty busy man to be chair of all of those uh, disciplines. But um, he was a mathematician and uh, he took 600 of his students uh, and he took just eight of the prophecies referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament. He took eight of those prophecies about the Messiah and he applied the principle of probability. He said, let's take these eight prophecies about the coming Messiah and let's see what would be the odds of one man fulfilling those eight 
Now, not the 300 that we've mentioned, uh, 300 possible prophecies and allusions to the Messiah, but let's just take eight of them, take eight of the more prominent ones. What would be the odds of they being fulfilled, those being fulfilled in one man by accident, just by chance? What would be the odds? And he came up with a number that is one in 10 to the power of 33. So that's a one with 33 zeros after it. That's an enormous, it's a colossal number. It's, it's uh, way, way more than the entire population of the earth since the earth began. So it makes it effectively impossible for uh, someone to fulfill those accidentally or incidentally. But if you've got 300, that it makes it absolutely certain. Astronomical. Absolutely certain that sure. Jesus is who he said he was. And that's right. And that's, that's the most fantastic thing. And this is one of the things that really got me excited as someone who was an unbeliever, who came to be a believer, was that there is really uh, powerful evidence for Jesus being just who he said he was, just who his followers claim him to be, and just who Christians claim him to be today. So um, to me, that was powerful evidence and um I think that, uh, you know, we talked before about whether the Bible could be trusted. If the Bible was indeed a message from God, and it was a message from God about the Messiah, the one who was going to save our lives, the one who was going to actually give us the chance at everlasting life, I mean, that's quite a remarkable concept. If that really were true, it would make sense that God would give us in advance the identifying characteristics of who that Messiah was going to be so that when he came, we shouldn't miss him. And I think he's been positively identified. We've run out of time, Peter. It's been a great discussion. But I wonder if you would like to close with a prayer now. Certainly. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for providing for us within the Scriptures and even outside of the Scriptures much evidence that points to the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah of Bible prophecy. And we would just ask that uh, as we continue to investigate, continue to study uh, the Word of God and the material that you've given uh, to us to help us understand who Jesus was, that we will grow more, uh, more confident in who Jesus was, who he means to us personally, and uh, our place in the universe and the plans that you have for us as human beings. Lord, bless all those who are listening and may we continue to learn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Remember to join us next time. Bye for now, and God bless you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 